Welcome to Heart Shaped Pod, a Nirvana fan podcast, with your hosts, Adam Todd Brown and Travis Clark. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Heart Shaped Pod. I am Adam Todd Brown. I remain Travis fucking Clark. Travis fucking Clark. I'm, I'm That's right. Copyrighted that. every time. Yeah. Yeah, thank I you don't. for reminding well, me. Top I, of the show. There was one time I didn't do it, and you threw it back in. So now I feel it's a it's a shtick. You know, I have yeah, to stick with yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we have a guest today, Mark Yarm, author of "Everybody Loves Our Town: An Oral History of Grunge." That is correct. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You gave us a copy of the book, and uh, very excited to read this. I am. I am as well. I mean, I'm going to pay attention to you because you're in the room. But I, when we're done, I'm reading it. I'm going to yeah. start it. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate that. You should, probably should have read it before being Nirvana podcast host. Perhaps. Oh, you didn't give us a copy. Yeah. Before, oh, so that's how. Yeah. Yeah. Bookstores. Amazon. Yeah. We actually oh. only read free. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the whole reason. I have only read two books in my We life. expect to yeah. be paid for what we do. Right. But everyone else, we're just like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we'll work it out. No, I'm really excited. Uh, I'm excited to read it. We have a book club podcast, too. Maybe I'll make... Oh, do you? Yeah, I'll make Danger Van Gorder read this book. Nice. Well, he's a, he's a musician. He'll be right. way fucking into it. So uh, we'll cover it. That. You were telling us, though, so the copy you gave us is different than the title yeah. of the book that you told us. That is the British paperback version which will be out september 7th or 8th in the uk it's called it's also called everybody loves their town but the subtitle is a history of grunge because they don't do oral in britain (laughs) i love it that was a joke that we kind of workshopped here (laughs) yeah I don't know. No, you brought that to the table i did i did bring that yeah i did bring that you had that loaded in the guns that was great we, yeah, we were actually kind of put off. Like, yeah. oh, we're the comics, Whoa, buddy. Hey, Whoa. coming in here with the Sorry. material. But we sorted it out, and I now we're doing a podcast. Um, I, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, mm-hmm. but with a name like Mark Yarm, how many people mistake you for the lead singer of Mark? Uh, I mean, uh, of Mudhoney, Mark Arm? How often does that happen? A lot during the writing of this book. I would a, imagine a, a so, especially of, with this topic. Know, I'd yeah. email somebody writing an oral history of grunge, Mark, and but it was a great icebreaker in a way because they'd be like, "Ah, oh, ha ha, that's funny. You're Mark Yarm, and he's Mark Arm." I mean, a couple of people had to, you know, had to say, "No, I'm really this other guy." But uh, and you know, I have a I have a picture. I went to the Sub Pop 20th anniversary, and I have a picture of me and Mark Mark Arm. And I call it Arm and Yarm. Arm and Yarm. Yeah. <laughs> So, Mark Arm and Yarm and Arm and Arm, um, and uh, yeah, it was and it was actually worked out quite well in that regard. It's a little confusing for people. Sure, I have to put it on all my social media. Like, not, I know it's in not, your bio. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's in my bio because otherwise people will confuse me, and I I don't want to spread. There's already enough confusion in the world as is. Right. Sure. I don't want to. I don't want to add to it. But also, too, to have like an iconic name within the grunge or a similar name to an iconic grunge pioneer i don't he probably hates that right i would i would yeah. he'd, he'd he'd be all right he'd be all right no, with no, it. He'd, he'd probably hate it but uh, he's the one who said that the streets are paved with grunge right wasn't that mark arm who said that in I don't seattle know. i i have i've heard that before but i don't know who said that i'm gonna say it's mark i'm gonna go on the record and say i don't know that it was mark arm but i think it was mark arm well should we should we get right into talking about it that's our topic today is right 
some of the biggest myths and misconceptions, or maybe they're not myths, you know, just uh, things people think. The about stories grunge that people tell one Nirvana. another, the yeah. oral histories that people pass along, correct, that may or may not be rooted in fact. It's the myth that we prefer, that we prefer to propel, right. Too much? All right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> was a little over the top. I've, you know, I've watched a lot of the leftovers. I'm really into <laughs> myth building. It's really where I'm living in my mind at the moment. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about some of these myths that surround both Nirvana and that scene at the time. Right. Uh, yeah. So grunge started in Seattle. That The genesis of that name uh, has always confused me. I don't know if the name itself comes from Seattle or I've heard... England? I've heard Lester Banks. Really? Yeah. I've never heard that. Uh, there are there are it, as you'll see in the book when you read it, there there's a whole there's a pretty good section of a chapter dedicated to where the etymology of grunge and where it came from and it and you know dates from like uh copy on on uh vinyl records like 50s, 60s. Like, that far back. Know, yeah. I mean grungy guitar tones. Um, um. I mean the the way we know of grunge you know dates to actually mark arm himself is sometimes credited with he doesn't like that oh does he yeah, hate that he hates he hates the fact that or that people uh say he coined the word grunge because he used it in a fake fanzine letter that he wrote uh regarding his band uh pre-mud honey band mr epp in the calculations he called them he called them grunge or grungy in that I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but, um, and, you know, Sub Pop used that, uh, the, the word grunge. Uh, I think it was ultra loose morals. Oh, nope. I messed that up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me start again. Um, Sub Pop used that in their, um, you know, ad copy early on. And it just, it really just caught. And, you know, once it was used in, in the press in Britain, you know, then it became, for all intents and purposes, grunge. That's when they flew, Sub Pop flew the, uh, the British press yes. out for a holiday, right? For the right. They, they flew this writer, Everett True, in, and uh, they got him drunk. And he basically, as you know, he tells me in my book, just kind of wrote what they told him. Some of it was actually dictated verbatim you know, from Sub Pop. Wow. So they, they had a PR machine in place before they were big enough to have a PR machine. Yeah. I mean, they, would, they, they definitely had a hype, a shtick way well, well before, you know, there was anything to really hype. Yeah. That, that comes up in a lot of books about, uh, about grunge and about Nirvana is how Sub Pop was really great at marketing and Right. Stunts. Kind of, not really stunts, but just, you know, like almost making their records seem like a bigger deal than they were. Right. And last week when we were talking about the Bleach era recording, uh, Kurt had some kind of tirade he went on in his journal about just add hype or something and, and water. And it was the sub pop machine was what was growing right. instant hype or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was. That was uh, when he was really bent out of shape about the Love Buzz single. Oh, right. Only being... Oh, Kurt. Just being a mail-order single. But that was the kind of thing they did. Like, that was... You That's know. what built the sub-pop machine, right? Yeah. That's what, how they grew into what they are now. Right. And I, I imagine if you were living in that moment, it probably seemed almost kind of pointless or reckless or irresponsible. But looking back, it... I mean, it, it, it obviously worked. They're still here. Yeah. You know? Now they're enormous. 
They are enormous. They're yeah. huge. They yeah. have a store in the Seattle airport. That's right? about as big they as you do. can get. They do. And they're they're half owned by a major label, so Oh, uh, so oh. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're not supposed to do that, right? That's the selling out bad well, you weren't supposed to do that. Now, <laughs> now it's fine. Yeah, yeah. It does seem much more fine now. Like people are Because no one can make any money. Yeah, yeah. So you have to sell out what would be considered selling out 20 some years ago is really the only way to get your music heard and to make any money right yeah yeah that it always kills me when people complain about musicians using their song letting you know commercials use their songs right it's like why are you watching tv with commercials still idiot like who fucking cares what songs are in commercials (laughs) haven't seen one in six months at least i know i will say there was a time when i was watching i think it was a car commercial and there was a pixies song on it and it made me just go yeah what it it, it's it's weird the um uh, emotion that you assign to your 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 bands and what you think that is not in their best interest or or making it no longer precious to you right Dental care may, right. may or may not be in their best interest. <laughs> right. I don't know. Rent. Yeah. <laughs> Food. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, aside from the name, which uh, there, there's also... Have you seen the documentary about smart studios? I have not, actually. It's uh, That's where the argument is sort of made that maybe this sound originated in the Midwest with bands like Killdozer and scratch acid because that whole documentary is about smart studios which is where uh it's in madison wisconsin nirvana recorded some of the demos for nevermind there uh, a bunch of smashing pumpkins albums were yeah. recorded there gish was recorded there wasn't it or tracked yeah. there or something yeah. yeah yeah and uh touch and go i think we're in chicago sst i think was in chicago no sst was here on the sunset strip oh yeah oh they're a, they're that a, makes sense yeah. From an acronym standpoint, for sure. What? SST, Sunset. Oh, no, it's oh no, that doesn't yeah, still do- No, You know what? SST is... Podcast is over. Okay, well, that was fun. Yeah. We did it. We made it. Yeah, we ruined it. SST, uh, by the way, stands for Solid State Transistor. Uh, That's what it stands for. But but yeah, that, that documentary, and Butch Vig especially in, in that, kind of makes the argument that maybe that sound started there, which... I mean, I'm only so old, man. I don't, I don't. Right. I grew up in the Midwest, but this we're talking like if early only, '80s when I would have been like six or seven. Mm-hmm. So I can't really. I don't know. If only uh, we had an oral historian <laughs> of the grunge scene. Where does well, the sound come where from? Where does the sound originate, sir? I would still say it's a, a Seattle phenomenon, but there is definitely that that Midwest connection. Um, the reason Butch Vig Butch Vig was brought on by Sub Pop because he had produced that Killdozer album, 12 Point Buck. Oh, it's a good yeah. And they yeah. love the sound of that, the guys at Sub Pop. So they had him produce a couple of bands, The Fluid and, and Tad. Oh, The and, Fluid. And, I haven't and, thought about The Fluid in ages. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Fluid from Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And um, so that so there was a definite uh, link there. I think Killdozer was, was very influential on Tad and, you know, also Nirvana. Uh Scratch Acid, as you mentioned, was a, a, a big influence. So um, that's how Bush, Butch Vig came into the Nirvana orbit through that, through, you know, Fluid right. and Tad. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? I, 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 I would still credit it with Seattle. I, don't, I would, too. Like, I mean, because, look, 
You can One s- Butch you- Vig documentary isn't changing my <laughs> mind. It's a good documentary, though. You can right. argue all day long where something originated, where the, the, the seed of it was, where everybody's entry point for what we consider grunge is Seattle. That is yeah, for right. sure. the thing that everybody by 91 was obsessed with nationwide if right. you were into that kind of music that, that we I did a road trip to Seattle for no other reason that I just thought I would go there and see every band that I loved what year was this this was 94 and did you see every band I, you loved? probably not they, not, were, probably they were all gone they were all very yeah, busy what, what yeah. part of 94 were you planning to see Nirvana <laughs> no I was not planning to, I was well, <laughs> maybe maybe early 94 early early 94 yeah. yeah that just New Year's 94 I was like <laughs> I can make it it's not too late. Might have been 95 even, now that I think uh, about it. way too late. Yeah, I was too late. Yeah. I'd, I'd missed the bus. You would have definitely missed the Cobain bus. <laughs> well, for sure. It's also yeah. the name of this episode, the Cobain bus. The Cobain bus. bus. That's not true. How did they feel about the word grunge overall in Seattle? Um, well, I mean, a lot of people, as uh, I kind of mentioned in the introduction, a lot of people would be like, uh, grunge, you know, grunge, they it, there was a lot of groaning, and I hate that word, and it's right. concocted bullshit. And that, so there's still even, you know, even 20, now? 20, 25 years later, seen as a marketing term and kind of grown. I mean, some people have embraced it, like Mud Honey at one point, who are like pretty much the pen, you know, the ultimate grunge band. Yeah. Like they kind of embraced it at one point. If they're like, if, if, if we're not grunge, then who is? So, yeah, I remember uh, I read an interview with Mark Arm, and he was like, uh, yeah, credit to us for finally embracing grunge in 1998. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was super late in the game. I was thinking about it uh, earlier today. Like, I don't hear that term really used anymore. You don't hear about neo-grunge. You don't hear like a resurgence of that. Or am I just out of the loop? It's very possible. Um, post-grunge, certainly. There's a post-grunge? Uh, you know, bands like uh, Creed and Nickelback. Oh, those are... Oh, that's, I, Is that what we're calling post? I just call that... Crap is what mm-hmm. I call that. But it's kind of... That's post-grunge? In yeah. my mind. Oh, I see. I was like all excited by like post-rock, like post-grunge. It's kind of like explosions in the sky, but like angry. Yeah. I was really excited for a second no, there. No, no. I wish there were. I, I mean, should... more exciting. Yeah, that's... I mean, that that's one of the one of the myths we had on, on the list was that grunge had a really great legacy. And it doesn't. Like the, that, that comes up in the Everett True article you sent us. Right, right, where he he talks about you know if you look at the legacy and the the bands that were spawned from grunge, it's not great. Like it's well, a lot of creeds and well, but apparently that's post grunge, so we can't consider that. Is that still part? Well, that's the legacy, isn't it? The yeah, post. lots of puddles of mud and such. Yep, but we also have your Nirvanas, you have your Tads, you have your Soundgarden, you have. <clears throat> I, I take exception to that there is not a good legacy because I'd argue that there is. I'd oh. argue it changed the scape of American pop culture. Right. I think we're we're just talking about what these bands begat. Yeah. Like what they what they what they're responsible well, then for you could say that, giving the world. You could say that Beck begat uh you know, Limp Biscuit, you know? Like that's everything that is good yes. has a bad thing that comes because oh, of yeah, it. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that there's, uh, I don't know. I feel like with Nirvana and just that, like, I don't know if it was, it, it wasn't grunge's fault, but like that whole extreme <laughs> It's movement. not your fault, grunge. But grunge like, is not your fault. But is it? Like, remember in the 90s when everything had to be extreme? 
like how much of that was grunge and like people like Dan Cortez who oh. were like you know, doing yeah. fucking kick flips on snowboards, but wearing flannel and like playing guitar while that. I don't know if that all actually happened at the same it time. It feels accurate. But like, I don't know how much of that was responsible for. Like, I, I, I've never, I feel like there's a connection between grunge and that whole extreme kind of movement. I Is see, that even the right word for I, a trend? I think there was a connection between grunge and the swing dancing. That the really? swing dancing was like a counterculture movement against that. That's that, so much worse than Nickelback. Well, swing, swing dancing was what, like 97, that whole thing? And I, well, I started first hearing about, I mean, well, I was really into this. Yeah. I was oh, not okay. into the scene at all. Uh, I first, it came up on my radar when guys like uh, um, Scott Weiland were around town trying to take swing dance lessons in like early 95 and the Dresden and, uh, and the, all of that stuff was going on. There was this big kind of pushback against sloppy flannel, and now it was like you know fitted suits and like organized moves and big band. To me, that felt like the counterculture move to the right. counterculture. I mean, move. there was electronic music, obviously. That came true, right yeah, after it. right, right, right. I remember when everybody thought that that was the future of music that there was only going to be electronic instruments, and everybody gave up playing guitar, and every yeah. Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> song sounded like a broken Casio, and yeah, the legacy of grunge. Do you, you disagree, Travis? You think I it's, think there's a great legacy to crunch. Well, I think is, it's a two-part thing, though. It's, you know, I mean, those bands have a great legacy, the bands that started it, but what they spawned just isn't... Like, are there any good bands, you know, like post-grunge bands? I can't... Well, I mean, it's also, you're, you're thinking, like, the immediate aftermath, the, the copycats, the wannabes. The, right. I mean, but, you know, there are people now, you know, like, Whatever you might think of her, Lana Del Rey would cite Nirvana as an influence. Sure, right. Van Waves would cite them as an influence. I mean, so many people would would um, cite. You know, when Chris Cornell died recently, so yeah. many people came out and cited Soundgarden as influence. So, you know, in the immediate aftermath, sure, it was carbon copy sort of bands. But right. I mean, I think there is an enduring legacy, certainly. Yeah, I'd argue you don't get Queen to the Stone Age without grunge. Yeah. That's my argument and Queens of the Stone Age is one of my favorite bands so I think that's a huge legacy well I mean it, you know Josh was in uh, the Screaming Trees right and he was Mar his, Mark Lanigan is a Mark Lanigan a, is know, a yeah is a staple of the grunge scene I'd and say of uh, Queens of the, I mean a part time right. member of Queens of the Stone Age so there's some crossover there. And Grohl played drums in Queens for a while. Grohl, and yes, yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot of grunge people who've made their way into the Queens camp. Yeah. And I would consider Queens if we're going by that kind of era when they became Queens, that's like ninety eight, that's post grunge. So that would be a reaction to the grunge scene, right? We're just gonna be using the term post grunge so much on this podcast. I now. love it. It is. It's good. I I had never I guess I'd never heard it. No. No. Like, but it makes sense. I mean, those bands are kind of like directly spawned from that. Nirvana, are they still considered the king of the whole grunge scene? Is that the the overall consensus? I mean, I think by by most people, yeah. What, by, what's your opinion? I mean, you I you've mean, immersed yourself in this world for a while. I mean, I would say like a band like Mud Honey sure it, it epitomizes grunge, or at least early on did. Um, you know, they branched out from that sound later on. Um, but yeah, I mean, Nirvana is obviously always going to be the band. They're, you know, there are four main bands. You know, 
that in in the public consciousness at least Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden. Yep. So those were the four oh, I was thinking of. Poor Billy Corgan. Oh, well, I mean, they're not yeah. a Seattle band. They get lumped in there sometimes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he gets really bitter not being mentioned in that. He's not part of it. That's like saying I I want to be considered I mean, he's part still of your part. Like even though he's not from Seattle, like they were as much a part of that like '90s sure revival. I guess I don't know. But what all you of the bands it, that you re- that you reference as the Big Four would have had they would have known each other in the hometown in the home base of Seattle. Uh, for the most part, I mean, I think Alice and Chains were were the exception because they were from the metal side of town. Oh right! So oh, were they? Yeah, have yes. you ever seen old pictures of Alice I and have. Chains? Yeah. They're all glammed up. Yeah, yeah it's great. They great. Had some uh, you know, Lane Staley's hair was pretty teased out. Yeah, and yeah, he, um, yeah. They were certainly, um, you know, from uh, literally the other side of the tracks. But uh, you know, as they went on, they they. You know, actually got to know the other bands. I mean, Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam in particular. Alice in Chains' career was crazy because they started touring with like like metal metal bands. Like they'd go on tour with like Megadeth and like Slayer, yeah. And, yeah, and people would throw crap at right them because people were, they, yeah because yeah, yeah. they were like not real like not real metal in their minds. Right, and they were the opening act on like Clash yeah. of the Titans tour. So yeah, <laughs> that's basically you get crap thrown at you, right? Yeah. That w- was that the Metallica no, Guns N' Roses too? That was Megadeth, Testament, Slayer, and Anthrax. Oh. The, and, and they all hate one another. Yeah, that all, is a weird yeah. lineup for Alice in Chains. Yeah, and also. then Alice in Chains opened for that. Yeah. And then uh, my favorite uh, quote about that tour was someone asked Scott Ian how the tour, how's the Clash of the Titans uh, tour going? We're clashing. Like, <laughs> it's just them fighting the whole time. Yeah, I can imagine. So, fine. Grunge has a great legacy. I think so. <laughs> Let's say mixed. 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 Like, like anything in life. A right. mixed bag. Like so many other things. Uh, let's talk about... You wanted to talk about the, the escape from rehab story. <laughs> right, right. That one, I've never... That's always confused me, because I've always been like, why do you have to escape? He's a grown man. It's just, just the, when he... Uh, did he meet Mark Lanigan in rehab, or is that a different story? No, Gibby Haynes Gibby from the Butthole Haynes, yeah. Butthole Servers was there at that at that time. Okay, so um, they became friendly. Apparently, um, actually, a little tangent. Gibby Haynes, I live in in Brooklyn. Okay, and Gibby Haynes, uh, Gibby Haynes lives or used to live in my neighborhood. I see him around all the time. I mean, you know, obviously he's from Austin, so right? But and I wanted to interview him for the book, and I. <laughs> It was there's a health food store ac- across the street from my apartment, and there's Gibby Gibby Haynes now like wears like sweat sweaters. Yeah, like, and he's like, like very cart- tiny. Cart- no, he's big. He's a big guy. He's tall, but he used to be much wider. I thought. Yeah, he seems like he's a very stout man now. He's probably in a little better shape. I okay. don't know, but it, it it's kind of like a sort of gentrified neighborhood that you would you know you wouldn't associate with Gibby Haynes at least not in his prime sure so, right so I was in the you know I was in the line behind I was in a really foul mood that day I'm like oh, I'll see Gibby around the neighborhood some other time I never saw him again and I was kicking myself that I didn't but I, I was a little afraid of him too sure well yeah I mean he's a you know acid freak yeah, or well, back in the day I, I don't mean know how, I don't know now butthole surfers in their heyday, were insane. Yes. They were insane. That was the band, and this is what I thought was one of uh, uh, Nirvana's original names, 
but uh, it was actually a butthole surfer's name. It's Dictit. That was one of the names that they performed it's under. A strong you, name. It's a good name. It's a <laughs> solid name. It's also the yeah. name of this podcast at one point. <laughs> well, yeah. Right. Heart-shaped Dictit. <laughs> Total coincidence, <laughs> weirdly enough. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, right, the rehab escape uh, myth. Right. I mean, the myth, I mean, he did apparently jump over the wall to get out of rehab. But the point of it was like a, you know, like an inpatient outpatient. He could have just gone through the front door. He could have just left, it was, right? It was yeah. a punk rock thing to do to like yeah. skedaddle over the wall, but he didn't have to do that. You know, somebody who, who went to the same rehab facility talks about it in the book. And it's like, he could have just gone through the front door, you know? He didn't have to <laughs> jump over, jump over uh, some wall. But, I mean, that's Kurt, right? Always trying to sell you the better story. That was right? a, that is yeah. a much better story. Yeah. Yeah. I so he, he also yeah. could have just lied about jumping over the wall and went out the front door, too. Sure, yeah. That would have been easy also. This was pre-everybody having a cell phone and, and cameras. You yeah, could have been like, oh, man, I jumped. Maybe he did. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about myths. I know you guys have discussed this before about living under the bridge and such. I mean, he was the, the ultimate, or not the ultimate, when it came to him, the ultimate Kurt Cobain myth maker was him. For sure. And maybe sure. Courtney, too. So, um yeah. yeah, who knows? Who knows what what the truth is? What do you? We've talked. Uh, we talked about this on the the show once. How do you think if Kurt Cobain had lived and Kurt Cobain was still alive? How do you think that that kind of history of like myth making and telling these you know kind of fantastical stories about his upbringing? How do you think that would have aged into the internet age when people can start? Googling things and like Steve Ranazisi is, I think, a good example of a guy who was like, yeah, I was at I was in the Twin Towers on 9-11. I had to be evacuated. And eventually people were like, no, we know that's not true. Right. And Kurt Cobain obviously didn't have any stories that crazy, but right. he told a lot of stories about himself that weren't necessarily true. How do you think that would have impacted his legacy had he still been alive today. Oh, I mean, we know they're not true now. So, I mean, yeah. does, it, does that affect your, your view of him? Well, it, it doesn't, but also... It doesn't affect my view of him, but also he's never had, like... There was never that moment where someone was able to sit down with him and be like, why'd you lie about all this shit? And I just, I'm just... Like, the with how the internet works today and, you know, kind of like call-out culture type mm-hmm. of stuff... I'm just I just wonder if that would have caught up with him in any way or, you know, I mean, there's no, obviously no way to know. But I've, I've always kind of wondered about that, like how that aspect of his story would have aged had it carried on through the Internet. It's a good question. Something to ponder. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, certainly now we can. I mean, he's not around to defend himself, right, but we right. can certainly pick holes at everything he said, and yeah. it doesn't really diminish him much. I mean, he probably right. he probably would have naturally, as most people do as they age, embarrass himself some other way, right? For sure. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure. I mean, they, they left a really good musical output. Uh, you know, if Nirvana had continued, it probably yeah. probably would have declined. That's just the natural course of things, right? Yeah, that's so that happens. There, there would be other. Th- I think do you think would they would have stayed together? As a I band, mean, around when he around when he died, they they were. It's a little it's a little tricky, but they were semi broken up. It seemed, you know, for, yeah. all, for all intents and purposes. I mean, the talk was that he wanted to go solo, kind of sort of be a Neil Young sort of right. neo folky, um, which is a direction I could see him going in. Yeah, certainly. for sure. 
I was thinking about this because you know we've been diving more into the early days of of Nirvana and when that was, and then you think of when the end date of when we don't have Nirvana anymore. They're on the scene for I mean five years total. Yeah, it's like it's a, it's a blip brief. compared to all these other bands that we're talking about. Some of which are you know still together. So yeah. it's strange to me that they're the ones that skyrocketed up, but were barely they were they were barely out of high school by the time that they were getting all this attention. And you don't see that happening with any of the other bands until they bro- until Nirvana broke the grunge gate open, as it were. Yeah, wasn't was Pearl, Pearl Jam's ten was out for a long time before it really took off. Oh, right, out for about six months. It yeah. came out around the same time as uh, Nevermind did, but it was a more of a slow burn. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it, it seemed like it, you know, just kind of picked up after, like a lot of things changed after Nevermind. Right. But but okay, the whole Pearl Jam Nirvana rival, I feel that's a myth. I feel like they didn't really even run in the same circle in terms of music venues and music fans. I don't I don't think it's a I don't think it's a myth. They didn't no. like each other? No. I mean there was certainly I mean, bad mouthing between the two camps. I mean Kurt I mean Kurt kind of found his way back to I mean there's that have you seen the um the documentary the I guess it's the Pearl Jam 20 documentary where they show the scene of Kurt and Eddie uh, slow no. dancing. You haven't seen no. that? No. Oh, I've seen that clip, but I haven't yeah. seen that documentary. Yeah. yeah, that was at the MTV Awards. That was kind yeah. of like a making making it, peace between them. I mean, they kind of shit-talked them a lot because they were, you know, uh, Jeff Ament or Ament. I never know how to pronounce that. Yeah. Still don't. Ament, I thought it was, right? Isn't that it? I hope not. I've heard Ament it. is so much easier. Okay. okay. Ament. Ament. <laughs> um... You know, they, they should talk to him, him and Courtney should talk to him because he was a jock. You know, jock, definitely yeah. not, not cool to be a jock back then. Right, not right. Not cool to be into basketball. And, and Pearl Jam were more like that. And I mean, frankly, Pearl Jam obviously more of like a classic rock band. Yeah. But I feel like it was like the Ramones hating the Grateful Dead. It's like we, you're not... Su- you're not in the same thing. Like you're very different. But they were they geographically they were and yeah. and they were lumped in the public consciousness together. Yeah. So um, of course and and in every interview they were asked about each other. So that's where a lot of friction arose. But they were vastly different bands. Yes. And that seemed to be But Eddie at least on Kurt Cobain's side, one of the his problems was with them was that sure. they were like a stadium or an arena rock but band. I could understand in his opinion. I could understand him disliking the actual band Pearl Jam, but Eddie Vedder is a San Diego dude. He's not even a Seattle guy, right? Isn't that isn't he an Correct. outsider? Isn't that part of the problem? Or is that a is that something I plugged into it? Um, I mean, I think I think musically, uh, Kurt didn't like Pearl Jam, but he he did say in interviews that he did like Eddie Vedder, and that the, I guess they had reached out to each other. So, um, I mean, that was after after. You know, they had to get to know each other. Right. A bit, but, and there was certainly a connection there, especially on Eddie. I mean, Eddie Vedder, after, famously after Kurt died, you know, like tore apart a hotel room and, you know, took a, a, not a tantrum. What would be the right word for that? He expressed himself physically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Through a fit? He had a fit? He had a fit. Yeah. A fit. Yeah. A fit. Yeah. A fit. Um, 
and f- certainly felt a kinship. I mean, you know, who else would you feel kinship with besides, you know, the other voice of the generation? Right, right? the other guy who who only had the other, the only other guy who had the same experience you do. Exactly. Like, Yesterday I was pumping gas. Today I am in front of a stadium. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it was uh, Pearl Jam, and they also had the huge feud with Guns N' Roses, which that seemed yes. real. That seemed super real. I think that was super real. Yeah. Which, but then that must have gotten get it. buried because then Velvet Revolver ends up covering a Nirvana song. Well, eventually everyone becomes. I mean, you get older and wiser. These guys. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, Duff McKagan is Duff is uh, a Seattle guy. Yeah, Seattle guy May, went out to L.A. joined Guns N' Roses, but he, you know, he has his. He was like in sixteen bands when he was in Seattle, um, and you know, since then he's. You know, he played with Mad Season. Right. When they, and when they, uh, I mean, he's a total Seattle guy, but he was in, sort of involved with that Nirvana feud. Or at least he was, you know, he's part of Guns N' Roses, and there was this this supposed feud going on. But it was definitely between Axel and Courtney and, and Kurt. There was a lot of animosity. Kurt and Courtney were kind of the Tom and Roseanne of the grunge world. Like, they were just <laughs> mad at everybody and just picking fights with people, it felt like. Like to kind of for their own amusement, is that am I wrong? That was my. Is that a weird analogy to make? Um, I feel like it. It seemed like that to some extent. Uh, I feel like with Courtney Love more than like Courtney Love was always really vocal about. Like remember when Alanis Morissette first came out and Courtney Love like shit on her. Like I, I feel like that was probably more. I feel like getting shit on by Courtney Love is just a rite of passage. It just means you're in the consciousness. Yeah, you know? like it just yeah. means you're big enough now that you've you've pierced that upper atmosphere. Yeah, she replied to a, a tweet that I think it was a cracked tweet. They sent something out about an article I wrote, and she wasn't happy, and she replied, but I couldn't like. I, I I I could not bring myself to try and engage in a back and forth with Courtney. What Love. was the What was the tweet? Um, it was just, they were just tweeting the article and I don't remember. Was it about her? Oh yeah. I'm sure she was mentioned in it. <laughs> oh, she had to have been mentioned in it in was some she just way. <laughs> Cause I've written so many articles there. I don't even remember what it would have been about, but I know I've written about like the, the conspiracy theories and things like that. That seems like a real sore subject for her. I wonder why. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, you know, people have opinions, you know, you think she'd be more open to talking about that kind you of thing. You think so, right? Yeah. Crazy. What what's your stance on the conspiracy theories? Uh, the about, conspiracy theories about uh, Kurt Cobain's death. Um, I think they're utter bullshit. All of them. All of them. Yeah. I mean, yes. Pretty simple. I mean, it was a pretty simple case of what happened. Yeah. It's tiring. It's tiring with people online. I mean, now even with Chris Cornell and Chester Bennington, there are people. Yeah. Know, Trying to oh, bring, are there? There's people saying like bring, murder theories about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, saying there yeah. was like ligature marks on Cornell's neck, and there was some kind of thing in his. Like everybody, everybody's listened to an episode of Serial, so they think <laughs> they know how to solve like true yeah. crime. You yeah, know, yeah, who's really murdering do. Chris Cornell? Nobody for what? Yeah. Well, somebody would, you know, they would say his his wife would, would uh, want his money or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, yeah. I I mean I it's just I don't know people people have a real for obvious reasons have a real especially if they haven't had depression or substance abuse issues they can't understand it and yeah and that's a way of of i think framing it in their minds i mean a lot of it's also just you know troll bullshit right well the best but, defense of the conspiracy theories that i've heard in, in terms of why there are them is that 
suicide is such a hard thing to come to terms with. You want it to be another reason. Right, right. You want it to be an outside reason and some other nefarious thing and not the person suffering. You know? Right. You know, so that's why people come up with these crazy ideas. Right. And the way it was investigated at the time just kind of left it in a way that there's not because the, the suicides and homicides are investigated a different way. Right. Like they don't necessarily even they don't send homicide detectives to a suicide. And, you know, back then, if you were a beat cop and you called in, there's a suicide here. They just kind of trusted you and sent out, you know, the, the people who pick up suicide victims and take them back to be cremated or buried. So there was no real murder investigation. So it's not. That I think that probably it was pretty well investigated. We're talking about Kurt now, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think it was pretty well investigated. But in in the book, I didn't go down that rabbit hole. I mean, there's there's some mention of it in there. I uh-huh. mean, um, you know, there's there's uh, you know, Court. I I spoke to Courtney for the book, so and uh, you know, she she alluded to it a little bit, you know, like uh, because there's a. Yeah, once you read it, there's like a lot of conflict between her and uh, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins. They they absolutely hate each other, and uh, he he sort of uh, publicly commented things that are conspiracy like, right? We'll say, and um, yeah, because he said the montage of Heck documentary yes. was like mostly bullshit. Right, right. I, I mean, that. there there are certain arguments for for the montage of Heck. I mean, the things that he was objecting to, I think, was the 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 uh, the scene where Kurt's gonna kill himself near the railroad tracks and he's just oh, happy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he I think he said famously said like ninety percent bullshit or something. Yeah, like that. but uh, and he would have heard about these things through the the grapevine, I'm sure. But I mean, also in in uh, the director's defense, you know, a lot of it wasn't. A lot of it was just you know this was Kurt. Kurt's words, and it was just putting visuals to it. So that that right. was that was the defense of of running some of that. I mean, he was meth making even as a, like a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Those so. audio diaries, yeah, the audio used, diaries yeah. were were very practiced. Like um, he was doing that from the get go. That was essentially him creative writing orally, though, right? That wasn't him recounting things that had actually happened. Isn't that what the people are saying with those things are? Yeah. I mean, there were, there, I'm sure there was some kernel of truth in there. Sure. Myth-making. Myth-making. Welcome to the Myth-making podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um... Yeah, there's Mythbusters, but there's no myth Right, makers. yeah. That's your next podcast. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah we should just start spreading myths. And sure. Right. Lies. <laughs> and sending out our seven inches to anybody who wants to... Listen to it. Exactly. I mean, that's really the best way to do it. There's a myth that Kurt didn't want to be famous, but I think that can't be true. It, yeah, that's definitely false. Yeah, it doesn't feel true, especially when you read the journals. Right. Right. Book. Right. Like there's a lot of planning went into things they did as a band, like sometimes years before. Right. Sometimes you did it. You just took over a radio shack and made your own music. Video. <laughs> <laughs> I love that video right. so much. <laughs> That is a good one. Um, yeah, there was something, and I can't recall if it's in the book or not, but I spoke to Danny Goldberg, who was um, Kurt's manager, or Nirvana's manager, and he said that Kurt used to watch MTV and count how many times the Nirvana video was played versus the Pearl Jam video. Wow. Yeah, wow. So he was definitely, there was competitive streak with him. I mean, yeah, the, obviously he tried to have play it both ways. Right. Being wanting fame wasn't considered cool so right you had to bemoan that 
that's really interesting because if his problem with the guys in Pearl Jam is what they were jocks, then Kurt was kind of a musical jock. It was kind of a it's us versus you. It was it was a it was a game. It was a a, a standoff between two opponents in his mind. If he's sitting there counting about who got more hits on the <laughs> MTV. Right. So he's got the jock mentality. He just has it about music. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I, don't, I, I just don't did. Know. I feel good about it. Well, it's got a, com- <laughs> you just did a competitive mentality, but there's a lot more to jocks than competition. I always just I associate think, jocks as being just ultra-competitive alpha yeah. male dudes. I think the, the distinction is that jocks and athletes, I think, are two different things. Like, jock has always kind of struck me as sort of a derogatory term for someone who's also, like, kind of athletic. So is jock just the, the precursor to bro? Is that what we would call a bro now? Yeah, I think okay. so. All right. Yeah. Jocks we're, were the bros yeah. of the 90s. Yeah, or, or, or bros are post-jocks is what we, <laughs> we could call them, I believe. If we're, we're living right. in a post-jock world. <laughs> we sure uh, are. Um, is there a myth about how Kurt and Courtney met? There is. There is. It propagated by Courtney herself. Oh, I would love to hear it. Yes. In the book also. It's in the book. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, she says that they met in 1989 at a club called the Satyricon in uh, Portland, Oregon. And uh, I mean, this is a this is in the Charles Cross book reported as fact, but right. you know that they they start wrestling on the floor of the club, and he gave her a sticker with that little monkey chim chim. Um, at the time he was dating Tracy Miranda. Oh, right, right, right. His first girlfriend. So, you know, and I also interviewed Everett True for the book who said, you know, that's not true. I, I introduced them or, or, you know, or came about it. Basically she, she said 89, pretty much people think it was 91. Oh, so he's on, he's already on the rise at this point. Or pre-rise, yeah, or, or, or generally speaking. I mean, she was certainly seemed to have some sort of infatuation with him. But this is the kind of thing that could be pretty, like if the internet were around today, yeah. you know, we'd look at the Instagrams and be like, oh, she wasn't at that show. Oh, yeah. Or, um, <laughs> but, you know, basically the cynics would say she was trying not to look like a gold digger like she had she had. had sure, she yeah. Had, the hots for Kurt before, you know, before any success came. So, um, but as I said, it's been reported as fact, but, uh, you know, and, and there are a couple of instances in the book where, um, you know, like, uh, Jennifer Finch from L7 says, I introduced them and uh, Lori Barbero of Babes and Toyland says, I introduced them. So there's like a little bit of, uh, vagary about how they first met, but, uh, it was probably in 91, not in 89. So, Wow. Interesting. I did not know that. I didn't either. Well, he still wouldn't have really been that on the rise in 91. In because 90, but you, Nevermind came out late 91. Late 91. Late 91 though, right? But it yeah. would have, if they, they had been working on, this is one of the myths I learned about Nevermind is that it wasn't recorded that year. It was, you know, they worked on it for quite some time. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they had done. I knew that we had talked about that they had gone and done some sessions at Smart Studios, mm-hmm. but I didn't know it had been over a year that they had been working on it before it was finally released yeah. and put out. So you figure in '91, you know that he's got a major record coming, major yeah, label record coming out. You know that there's something about to happen for this guy. It's like 
it's like you know dating an actor when you know they have a big movie in the can. <laughs> you know, like you know something's going to happen for them. Well, I mean, uh, actually, uh, Mark Arm comments on. It. He's like, why make up this in his mind? He's like, why make up this bullshit story? If you like the guy, you like the guy. Just right. like him. Like him when you like him. Yeah. Yeah. Like him. Yeah. Eighty nine, ninety one. What does it matter? So, um, you know, that's. I mean, and and I think in heavier than heaven, I think it's reported as 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 fact. I don't. I not. I can't one hundred percent say for sure. Say I haven't read it in a while. As you've gone through and put together this, uh, the everybody loves our town, a oral history of grunge. How much contradiction did you find between the different stories that you picked up? Like, does everything kind of come together or is there a lot of stuff where they're like this Kurt and Courtney meeting thing where there's a lot of like no I did it no I did it uh, there's a fair amount of, of that back and forth I mean the first chapter I, I go into uh, and here's a new it's not post grunge proto grunge band proto grunge oh yeah proto grunge the U-Men who were nice a, were a Seattle punk band and uh, very influential um, early mid 80s and uh, that there's a famous uh, prank that they pulled. They were performing at this Seattle uh, mural amphitheater, and which was surrounded. The stage was surrounded by a moat. And during their set, um, you know, they weren't. It's they. This is where uh, they weren't really. This was kind of like a family event, and they their roadies come out and pour gasoline onto the water. And during, <laughs> and during the during the you know like the final song or something, they, the the lead singer John Bigley puts down a torch and it. That you can see you can see a photo of it in the book, um, if you look at it, it should be in there somewhere, um, toward the beginning, uh, or perhaps that edition doesn't have it. But oh, there we go. There they are pouring in. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, and you turn the page and you can see this massive wall of fire come up. No, it's not in there. Not in that edition. Uh, uh, yeah, that was that was a real tease. I'm sorry. That was a real. I'm just tease. gonna draw it on the next page. Oh just yeah, flames. Uh, but you can find you can find yeah. it on the internet. Huge flames, but but it kind of sets up like there are these people who are like, oh, the flames it just last a second. It was barely anything, and there were people like it was 30, 40 feet, 50 feet in the air, and people were going crazy and beating up cops and cops yeah. beating up people and. It was. It just kind of sets that tone that you know everything you're going to hear in this oral history is is going to be contradictory in right. some way or or you know seen through different people's eyes and um, so there's a lot of that yeah but I mean I think you know like Kurt and Courtney meeting certainly is one of those things that uh, is is one of those things that people argue about yeah interesting I argue about it too yeah. Let's argue about it okay, right now. Here's, right, here's what I think. Here's what you mother... I don't think... Again! I, I think Courtney Love is a figment of his imagination. I think it's a fight club kind of thing. I think uh, there is no Courtney Love. Like Bada. Yeah, it's Bada. Courtney Love is female Bada. Did Bada really get drafted and go to Vietnam? That's a question I want to know. That's... I'm not, I'm not sure what reference. That, well, I know who Bada is, but what do you mean? There's, re- there's re- a story in Heavier Than Heaven where they say Kurt's parents were getting concerned with how close he was getting with Bada. Uh. So when one of Kurt's uncles got drafted and went to Vietnam, they just told him Bada got drafted too. Bada went along. Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. Re- I don't recall that story. Bada came back in a Bada bag. <laughs> uh. Travis, how what? dare you? Why'd you say? Too look, soon. That Too is soon. Kurt Cobain's <laughs> imaginary friend. 
True. That's true. But have you got, which other, you, you keep citing Heaven and Heaven, but which other books have you read? Besides uh, mine in the near future. In the near future. I've read, uh, I read Come As You Are. Yes. Uh, that, those two, I think, were the, the first. You should read the Everett True book as well. It's just called Nirvana. Oh, okay. Yeah. When, did, when did that one come out? Oh, geez. When did that come out? I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, it came out, did it come out after Heavier Than Heaven or before? I think it came out before. It's it's all a blur, but yeah. I think between those three books, you can kind of triangulate the truth because none of them, you know. Yeah. They, yeah. Well, yeah, because Heavier Than Heaven and Come As You Are, there's a lot of disparity yeah. between the stories. I read so. Kurt's journals and I felt real dirty doing it Did like you? it's well, a weird i mean it said on the front you please read right it says so... don't read you'll judge oh, a... oh don't read yeah yeah i thought it said please and read. then then yeah. you... meant please read. yeah That's what he meant. <laughs> then once you're inside it says okay you can read oh okay. but you'll judge yeah. yeah 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 i have yeah i've read journals also yeah i haven't read the everett true book i need to check that one out yeah you should i mean it also gives a good uh overview of like the olympia scene and sort of riot girl and things that ancillary to grunge Nice. And uh, we'll read this book also. We should, uh, maybe I'll cover this on the, the book club podcast. You should. I haven't picked my next book. Well, I, think that would be I think you just did. Yeah. I just did. fell into my lap. Pretty sure you just <laughs> picked it right now. Easy enough. Right. Uh, so this was fun. Do we have anything else we want to, any other points we want to get in before we? I have one other question about, uh, I, I just remembered this as we were talking. And sure. I've never read this anywhere. I just remember hearing this, that Kurt loved pranks especially like how the secret song on the original pressing of nevermind comes up later that that was something he did all the time to his friends where he'd record things and leave them playing is that a story that you came across and saw that that was a truth or is that just another one of those kurt cobain myth machines he wanted to put out there to sell the secret song (laughs) uh i don't know if that one's true i mean he certainly was a prank puller sure he did you know famously when they were recording in utero they did prank phony phone calls to like evan dando and it's like <laughs> it's like it's like madonna's on the line for you evan dando and they, and they would then they would listen to him like oh my god oh my god oh my god it's madonna <laughs> you know so but uh so i mean he 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 had a good sense of humor but um who knows who knows what if that's what yeah i i read a story about when they were recording nevermind that Apparently, at one point, Chris gets on the intercom and like starts challenging other bands over the intercom about how great this album's going to be. And I was like, do studios work that way? You can just get on one intercom and interrupt every other recording session happening? Is that a real thing? Did that really happen? I, I do recall a story where yeah. he got on the, the PA system, maybe. Yeah. yeah like, maybe it's like a high school thing, like the principal's announcement or something. I don't, yeah. That's the way I always thought of it in my mind. Not that not that he was oh. getting into every <laughs> studio, but I don't know. I don't Morning know. announcement <laughs> with Chris Novoselic. I mean, that's yeah. a podcast right there. Yeah. Where he just... You just have Chris Novoselic tell you what's going to yeah. happen that morning and challenge you how great his album is. And yeah. now, now he can tell you about electoral reform and things of that nature. He's got a new band, too. Yeah. Oh, yes, he does. Uh, giant, I heard one of their songs. Strangers in the Trees? Giants. Giants in the, in the Trees, trees. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've only heard the one song. but And he's a it was cool. pilot as well, doesn't he? He is a pilot. Yeah. Who's not? I'm not. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not. Either. I can barely drive. I can't drive anymore. I don't yeah. have a driver's license. You can't drive 55. It's been a problem for a while for you. Big yeah. problem. It's only one way to really? run. How do you get around? 
Oh, I just Uber, Uber in LA. Yeah. Well, I work from here, so I don't have to go places. It's just when I do comedy that I need to drive. That show in Tarzana next week will be fine. It's fine. Yeah, you just take a, a long bus ride. You'll be fine. <laughs> nah, I'm riding with Jeff. Oh, okay. I'll get a license someday. I have to someday. Pay off a fine. Sure. None of this is pertinent, and that's it's all going to get cut out. That's a myth right there that yeah. you get a license. All getting edited out. Uh, so this was fun. Uh-huh. We should we should wrap it up. We're getting a little over an hour. All right. Uh, let's re- remind everybody the name of the book again. The book is Everybody Loves Our Town: An Oral History of Grunge by our guest Mark Yarm with a Y. Mark Yarm with a Y. Definitely not Marky Arm. Not Marky Arm, which is what it looks like online when you have the Twitter handle. It looks that's, like you're Marky Arm. That's true. That's right. true. Yeah. So much so much confusion surrounding <laughs> the name, but it was I, maybe it was. The, book i was born to write i think it is yeah i'm really excited to read it thank you so much for uh bringing us a copy and thank you so much for doing the show well thanks for having me absolutely appreciate it do you have anything else you want to plug before we get out of here just any appearances or places people can see you talking about the book or anything like that no no the book's been out for quite a while now it's been out for about uh since 2011 so nice but there if you uh, if you do live in great britain this this uh, what this uh, paperback version is coming out September seventh or eighth. A very compact form, the most compact version of the book there is, and uh, it's also available in China and Finland and the United States. <laughs> that's the only one. <laughs> that last yeah. one's important. Yeah, that, that's the one that you want to get it. The market that you want to break that into. That was the twist. Travis, do you have anything to plug? Um. No, I don't. <laughs> I had to think about it. I don't have anything to plug. You can just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mr. Travis Clark. Uh, I'm also uh, at Mr. Travis Clark on Instagram. Oh, yes. You can follow me on Twitter at Mark Yarm, M-A-R-K-Y-A-R-M. I'm also on Twitter at Adam Todd Brown. That's Todd with one D. And also, uh, we have a live show August 23rd in Glendale at the Alex Theater, 7.30 p.m. The show opens, 8 p.m. The show starts... Lots of comics. Oh, I can plug that too. I will be in the audience. Oh, nice. Yeah, you can, so you can see me and come say hello, and I'll say hey. Buy and then you a you're drink. you're on one of the shows. I'm on the next one, I believe, the or septem- the septem- septem- sometime September. in September. Yeah. Travis will be there. Yeah, and uh, you know, subscribe to the rest of our podcast on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash/unpops. It's only five dollars a month. So cheap. Not I mean, spendy at all. No, just do it. All right, this was fun. Let's get out of here. Mark, say goodbye. Goodbye, guys. Travis, say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you.